0: You're here with Claudia Herzenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commission for the SGPS, and we're gonna speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Prince Michael I'm more, <laughs> I've said it like three times now, and I still can't get it right. Um, I, I apologize, Prince. Please help me with with saying your full name. It's Amebo. Amebo.
1: Yeah.
0: Amebo. Prince Michael Amebo. Okay, I've yeah. got it now. Thank you so much. Uh, Prince, thank you for joining me today on the show. I'm very happy to have you here, and we've got an exciting, topic, an exciting topic to talk about. For those of you new to uh, Beyond Canada, We speak about how international scholarship stretches Canadian borders and how it helps us and challenges us in a variety of different ways. And Prince is not only a very international person himself, he's studied in a variety of different countries, he's studied a variety of different people from different countries, but he's also doing a very interesting project. Today we're going to be speaking a bit about his PhD research, uh, as well as some of the opportunities and challenges he found while doing it. His research is titled Uncharted Paths, the Use of Traditional, Complementary, and Alternate Medicine Among Sub-Saharan Africans Living in the Greater Toronto Region. But before we get into your research, Prince, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to be here, and uh, what brought you to doing this type of research?
1: Okay, so um, I did my undergraduate studies in the University of Ghana, um, Legon, in um, Accra, and uh, in my undergraduate studies, I did a study on um, health insurance. At that time, the health insurance, Ghana National Health Insurance Scheme was in its infancy. It had been just about, um, I think, four or three years since in- implementation. So I did a study on how the health insurance was affecting accessibility and utilization of health services among different um, socioeconomic groups within the Cape Coast metropolis. And during my research, I realized a lot of people were talking about, um, even though they had insurance, they were using, um, traditional medicine. So which kind of piqued my interest to find out why these people were using traditional medicine when they had, um, health insurance, which provided free healthcare to, um, free healthcare for them. So I had the opportunity after my undergraduate studies to go and study in, um, University of Oslo for, um, an M4 degree in development geography wow and um i to build up on my undergraduate research i did a study on um the the use of um traditional medicine looking at it from a pluralistic perspective so by pluralistic perspective what it means is that um within the healthcare system we have different types of health um health healthcare avenues so like traditional medicine like um um biomedicine and even other Even in Ghana, we have even oriental medicine like Asian or Chinese medicine as well. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at how the factors that motivate the use of these different types of medicine and at what time, right? So at what time does one decide to choose um, modern healthcare over maybe traditional medicine or Chinese medicine? What kind does one choose the other over the the next? So
0: these are people using... um different types of, yeah. of medicine and yeah. you're trying to understand how they come to choose one form over another at specific moments in time. Exactly. Okay. Really, really interesting. So, sorry, continue. So now you, you're in, you said you're in Oslo. Yeah. Okay.
1: So after my studies, um, I had an um, interaction with Prof Rosenberg and I submitted some proposals to him.
0: So who's, sorry, who's Prof Rosenberg?
1: Oh, so that's Prof Mark Rosenberg is my supervisor, PhD supervisor. hmm And um, he was expressed interest in my research, so he asked me to apply to Queen's, and I applied to Queen's and came over here. Now, my initial research was also to build on, or my initial proposal was to build on what I was doing, because I realized there were like two or three dimensions of traditional medicine, right? Mm -hmm. A heavily commercialized aspect, one which was more like intermediate between commercialized and non-commercialized, and you have the more like self-care aspect but I noticed um when I came here there were issues with funding challenges especially if you want to go travel out or outside of Canada to do research so and considering my status and as an international student and everything mm. I opted to do rather focus on um a research in Canada okay. because I thought it will require limited resources in terms of traveling and also um yeah, the amount of money I was paying in terms of getting respondents.
0: So your your actual access to, it's sometimes something we don't speak about when doing research. We often get caught up in the really interesting detailed parts of research, which involve looking at, uh, you know, the theory and the methods and, and the findings, of course. Mm-hmm. That's that's often, I mean, you're doing incredibly interesting work here about, uh, you know, the 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 ways in which people access and choose to access different types of medicine. And I definitely want to ask more about that. But you raise a very interesting point here about access to, to resources and mm-hmm. how sometimes the simplest, in quotation marks, um, simplest of things can actually end up changing your research focus entirely. So to get more into detail with this, you were planning on going to Ghana again for your PhD research. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that was the plan.
0: Okay and then did you end up focusing on Ghanaians in Toronto?
1: No, so um I focused on West Af- Saharan West Africans um living in Toronto because I realized um the issue being it's it's to to focus on Ghanaians is very hard given in um research we tend them hidden population. Mm. So there's no information for example on addresses and um list of names of Ghanaians, for example, residing in GTA for you to easily contact, right? Yes. But however, if you are dealing with um, a more broader definition of your my target group or as Sub-Saharan Africans, then it's easy because you have these um, associations within the um, metropolis which can easily contact and it can lead you to some of these um, associations.
0: But isn't sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, this is a, a massive group of people. It's the yeah. majority of the African continent, which many people might not uh, might not know, is sub-Saharan Africa is a huge, huge extensive part of uh, the continent with a variety of different people, yeah. a variety of different, you know, traditional medicines, mm-hmm. a variety of different practices to those traditional medicines. How is that a challenge in, in navigating your research?
1: Yeah, so um, because it's a very... Broad group. Initially, I limited my um, focus group to three Anglophone um, sub Saharan Africans from West Africa. So, Nigerians, Ghanaians, and Saharanian. Because when I, so prior to going to the Ford, I had contacted some groups, and these were the three major groups that I had more like positive Mm. feedback from where people are willing to help me with my research process. Okay. Right. So, I chose these three groups as, um, so that's why my title was broadly defined mm. because initially you didn't know where you get positive feedback from, so I defined it broadly. But when I contacted them during the summer, I had positive response from these three groups, so they became the focus of my, um, thesis. Mm. Yeah. And also the interesting aspect was, even though we, we, they are heterogeneous, uh, heterogeneous group, the focus of my research was on uh, identity construction, right? Okay. And how that influence um, the choice of um, TCAM or traditional complementary and alternative medicine?
0: So, so what do you mean by so identity construct is a bit of a difficult concept? Uh, it's filled with different definitions and ideas. So, can you tell me what you think when you when you say yeah identity construct?
1: So, when I was looking at in, in terms of identity, I focused on two dimensions or two aspects: mm. ethnocultural identity. Right? And then the other one was aging, aging as an identity. Because if you look at the literature on um TCAM, that's the short f- or the acronym for traditional complementary and alternative medicine, it shows that um there is di- differences in blue patterns among the aged and the young. Right? For example, the young tend to use traditional me- um sorry, TCAM more than the elderly. Okay. However, the the powders in there is so the that, elderly
0: tend to use. What what do the elderly use?
1: So, um, for example, they use um, biomedicine. Um uh-huh. So, for example, if you pick the the proportion of older adults that are using traditional medicine or TCAM, they'll be say around forty, compared to the youth or the younger generation, where you have about um sixty or above.
0: 60%. Yeah. So you're about. finding a higher proportion of younger people using alternative and, and traditional medicines. Yes. Yeah. But the flip
1: side is the research also shows that people suffering from chronic heart diseases are more likely to use um, T-cam. Mm-hmm. And now, per knowledge, we know that um, older adults are more susceptible to chronic heart diseases. So one would think, invariably, older adults should use more TCAM. Than the younger ones, since they are prone to um,
0: more chronic diseases. Yeah. and what do you what do you think explains this uh, this this discrepancy between age differences in in their use of different types of medicines?
1: So, if you look at the literature, the main um, reason they give they gave for the differences was um, the, um, what you might call a generational gap. Mm-hmm. So, people are, the argument is that as the baby boomers age, right, since they have more resources compared to the previous generation before them, and even the millennia, they would their use of um, the use of uh, teakam among older adults will shoot up, mm-hmm. right? Because they have more funds available to use it.
0: So, so these other types of uh, these other types of medicinal uses are seen as extra, as as over and above normal medicine normal in mm-hmm. quotation marks um, medicine. do you find the similar differences between older and younger groups when you look at the populations in these other like in their respective countries or is this a product of being within Toronto itself?
1: So what that's what's become impo- very important in my research So you realize that um, in sub-Saharan Africa when if you look at the literature on traditional medicine, it shows that um, highly educated people are less likely to use traditional medicine. And now with, over the years, we realize that, for example, the number of people who are getting formal education is increasing. Mm -hmm. So you expect that traditional medicine, even though I've not seen any research on that yet, but you expect that traditional medicine among um, the older people will be, based on that knowledge, will be higher than the youth. So which more like the opposite of what you are seeing in the Western so what I gave initially was the picture within the West, Western world yes. or Western industrialized nation. But in sub-Saharan Africa, um, I think, in my view, I think it will be the opposite where the, the older um, adults are using more traditional medicine than the younger one. One, because they are more engaged in a substance agriculture or substance economy, like agriculture, hunting. So they have comprehensive knowledge on herbs and um, certain kind of um, products that they can use to remedy their common health issues as opposed to the youth that are becoming more modernized and tend to move towards urban areas right mm. so they, they there is some kind of um the the knowledge dis dismates because they they move away from the the older generation that were supposed to impart such knowledge onto them
0: all right yeah um and and what kind of traditional medicine are you finding in Toronto?
1: So, there were two dimensions. So, my finding reveals that there were certain aspects of traditional medicine, especially the Sub-Saharan Africans, that were easily available. And these traditional or remedies also serves as um, food items or food ingredients.
0: Such right? as?
1: Such as ginger, normal ginger, mm-hmm. garlic. And we have some cloves. Um, I've forgotten the scientific name, but in Akan, we call it ifomwusa Ifomusa and sorusar, right? Es- yeah, and um, precase. So precase, um, I've forgotten the scientific name. It's um used normally when you are cooking soup, and the idea is that it has this um benefits. It lowers your um cardio um cholesterol level, and also reduces your risk of getting um, hypertension or high blood pressure. So it's normally good for the aged people or people who have are prone to getting hypertension. Mm. Yeah, so these things are uh, readily available, especially you can find them in the African markets because they also act as um, food ingredients. However, there are some types which are very difficult to get. For example, in Nigeria, they call it um, dongo yaro
0: Which try. is like <laughs>
1: the neem tree, the normal neem tree, right? Neem tree? Yeah. So I think it? among the Igbos, they call it dongo yaro or something. Dongo yarrow? Yeah. Okay. And... Um, In in Akan or in my language, we call it a champon.
0: A champon. What is is your language? Fancy. Fancy? Okay.
1: So the champon tree is very good for fever, right? And malaria and other things. And because um, if you read the literature, most of the remedies that are used, um, remedies that are used in sub-Saharan Africa come from the immediate environment. Mm -hmm. Such things becomes very difficult to get within the, especially when they don't have any um, nutritional benefits, but just for medicinal purpose. So you can find them in the stores, especially in Canada. But, and so those are hard to get. But the ones that have nutritional benefits as well, as in, you can use them as food ingredient. Mm -hmm. Those are readily available within the system.
0: Interesting. And something I want to ask you about traditional medicine uh, that I'm, you know, I've, I've always wondered is there are many groups of people that have figured out a variety of different uses for a variety of different foods mm-hmm. and herbs over time that work and help and assist them, and I think that there is a prevailing idea that these are non-scientific. These are non-scientific forms of medicine. Has science proven or disproven the benefits of these types of, uh, you know, traditional herbs, etc.?
1: Yeah, so there there are even journals that are dedicated to evidence-based TCM or traditional complementary and alternative medicine. And when you look at it, there are so many, like, scientifically proven um, benefits from these traditional medicines. And even in Ghana, we have the Center for Plant and Herbal Research, Mm -hmm. which focuses on testing the the medicinal benefits of these plants and herbs that are used in um, the everyday context within Ghana. So there are scientific um, approval to some of these medicines. The problem is that... um, especially within the informal sector and by informal sector, I'm talking about, you know, when you go to the rural areas where, um, you have, um, what you call the herbalist or the priest or the divinist using some of these herb, because some of these plants have some level of toxins in them, Mm -hmm. right? Consuming them in certain quantities can have adverse effect on you as a user. Right? So that's where the challenge lies because um, but one would think, based on um, continuous use, generational use of these medicine, um, these traditional healers have knowledge on, you know, the quantities that they are supposed to administer to their um, patients through practice. Yeah, through practice, because you know things evolve with with practice. You get knowledge of mm. how things should happen, and um, but the risk lies where people, for example, you go, you go. It's even in biomedicine where you go to a doctor, you have a headache and he prescribe to you, let's say, um, Advil. Mm-hmm. Right. But based on your height and certain things, he might prescribe maybe 50 milligrams a day. And you probably, after that you fall, you have the same symptoms. Okay. And you think, okay, since they described a prescribed Advil for the first time, I can just go over the counter, pick up Advil, and probably might not take the dosage that was given Mm-hmm. In the prayer, so that's where the same thing with traditional medicine, where people might use source um, some of these remedies from nature or from the immediate environment, but do not have professional um, advice on you know the quantities that's and really, how it should be prepared.
0: That's a really powerful metaphor. So it's it's a similar thing to someone going to a pharmacy and trying to figure out their own solutions and strategies exactly. for how to navigate and take in in this medicine. That's really interesting. Um, so for I mean, it's fascinating research, and I feel as though we could probably take up the whole, the whole of our time together here <laughs> just speaking about your research because there's so many bits and pieces that I, I I don't quite understand, and how people navigate the geography of Toronto. Are there specific areas in Toronto that people go to find this, or is it just a, a variety of different types of um, you know herbs and foods are available in a regular convenience store?
1: So, um, because especially if you are you have a good knowledge of the GTA. Um, there is some form of ethnic clustering of mm-hmm. the population right so for example areas like north york around jane and finch street you find a lot of sub-saharan africans living there Ghanaians, nigerians you know people from anglophone mm-hmm. um um africa or sub-saharan africa um so for in those places you find a lot of Ghanaian or nigerian um convenience shops or um what you call food shops or where these are where you get some of these things, mm-hmm. right? However, if you go to other places like downtown, because most of, um, especially Southern Africans, don't live there, it's very difficult for you to find some of these things there or even find a Ghanaian shop at the downtown, because mm-hmm. all of them tend to be located where um, the, 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 the ethnic group or the
0: are national
1: group are concentrated, right? Okay. Because that's how you ma- maximize profit. Because if they are there and you are selling um, ethnic food, then they are more likely to patronize. Unlike being or locating in a place where you don't have your nationality or national group living.
0: And, and do you find that most of the the Sub-Saharan Africans that are living in these regions are they people that were you know that have expatriated to Canada that are studying here or, or working here, um, or are these people like how how did they come to be in Toronto? Has there been a lot of travel involved?
1: Um, So there are two, especially I'm saying this from um there was this there's this professor in York by name Joseph Mensah. He has written extensively about um black black Canadians focusing on sub-Saharan Africans who moved to Canada, and for Ghanaians and Nigerians there you can classify it as two waves. So the first wave had to do with um in Ghana there was um during the 1980s there was this um food crisis Mm -hmm. right um drought and other things so. People were moving and also we had a lot of coup d'etats around that era. Yeah. So people moved to Canada or most of those who moved during that period moved as either economic refugees or political refugees fleeing from these droughts um, of um, yeah food shortage Insecurity. and also security, the coup d'etat happening. And we have the recent wave, which has to do with students who are moving to either continuing their studies. Um, You have those from affluence family whose parents are educating them here because they want them to get Western education. You have those who are coming here based on either their um, academic performance, right, like myself. So I came here basically because of um, schooling, Mm -hmm. right, and and I came here because of funding that I received from Queens and from my um, PhD professor.
0: Right. So so to to navigate back to what we were speaking about earlier with regards to resources, can you tell me a bit about how that was a restriction to you? You're, you're doing a lot of, you know, you've been working on health and health-related to Ghana and specifically for a number of years now. Yeah. How did you come to have a number of challenges or opportunities that pertain to your research with regards to the resources available to you?
1: So... Um based on my experience in University of Oslo because i know in University of Oslo there is some um, an allocation for fa- research funding and it's a huge sum of money which basically can cover your airfare and even um oh wow can yeah your airfare back home and as well as um, um money for other research materials and moving around the fort like staying in um, hotels or staying in places renting places if for example, if I you want to be on the floor for two or three months, mm-hmm. that money can adequately cover your wow. stay on the floor. Yeah. So I thought the situation was going to be the same when I moved to Queens. Okay. The investor would provide like funds to cover PhD research because you know most of the catching edge resource um research in university comes from graduate works. Yes. Right. Working with professors and also graduate work. But I realize the situation here is totally different Mm. where basically it's like you are on your own or you are the mercy of your professor and here the notion i don't know about other universities but queens i realize the notion is um when it comes to everything pertaining to your your life as a graduate student it's more like you are the burden of your supervisor
0: what do you mean by that
1: so for example if you are having challenges with funding Mm -hmm. everything you when you speak to people they direct you to to speak to your supervisor, which I feel is wrong, mm-hmm. right? Your supervisor is to guide you through your academic process. Yeah, He or she is not responsible for your, you know, how the the conditions that are supposed to enable you flourish as a graduate student and in terms of financial benefits and other material benefits.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that leads to a lot of pressure for both you and, and your supervisor because... Uh, I mean, you said that you came to work here with, with Mark Rosenberg largely because he was also interested in the type of research yep. you were already doing. So it's it's really, uh, you know, it's it's quite, um, you know, startling, I guess, how much this can alter and change. Do, do you have any, no, I'm not going to, I was going to ask, do, do you have any sort of regrets about the type of research that you have done or did it all work out and, and you're feeling content?
1: No, I, I don't have any regrets. Um, I'm saying this because it's a general experience among the graduate students. Mm-hmm. But I happen to be the, the one of the fortunate ones. Because, like I said, my supervisor, because he was interested in my work and the kind of work I do, he provided funding for me indirectly for my forward work or for my research okay. in the form of right? So... Basically, you are supposed to do some work for him. Mm-hmm. Then, but these work also conspire, co- correspond with the work you are doing. Okay. For your, so you can use that money, the Irish funding, to for your travels and other things, right? But you know, they are all. They don't have infinite amount of resources compared to. Of course. The university. So the mm-hmm. amount they will give you is very limited. But compared to other experiences and speaking to other colleagues, I think I was in a more um, fortunate position, that a more secure position. Yeah, okay, because my my supervisor made those funds available, right? Even until until my fourth, my last year here mm. at Queen's.
0: And you're you're moving on to to postdoc now, where you're going to be able yeah. to continue this research. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So um, there is this new data center that has opened up at Aarhus University.
0: Wait, where where is Aarhus University?
1: So Aarhus University is located in Denmark.
0: Denmark, beautiful. Yeah.
1: But they have um. So you satellite are super campus.
0: international, huh? <laughs> three degrees, three different countries. Incredible. Okay, yeah. sorry, carry on.
1: So they have satellite campuses in different parts of different cities in Denmark. So the department that I'm working with, the Department of Environmental Science, is located at um, Roskilde, which is like 25 minutes drive from Copenhagen. Okay. Yeah. So I'll be working on that. It's called the Big Data for Environment and Health. And the center is called Beta Center. Oh. Yeah, so basically I'll be working with um, the professor in charge of the center, who is called um, Clive Siebel. So I'll be working with him on.
0: And will you continue your international focus? Uh, do you, Do you have a continued and dedicated focus towards uh, African relations to health, or is are things shifting now for you?
1: Um, I think when we we had correspondent join my interview, he gave me more like a, the freedom to do what I want.
0: Wow! Right,
1: and he even was willing to support me with, for example, if there is any, the need for funding for the project that I, w- I want to undertake, he's willing to help me with that, that direction. So there's some kind of flexibility in what I can do. But at the same time, they do have a lot of extensive data, mm-hmm. right? And even like live data on the population in Denmark. So I'll be working with that data as well as trying to look at other possible um, research projects that I can collaborate with him on.
0: I mean, in terms of urban studies, you could definitely then start looking at, at uh, Copenhagen and how different communities manage their access to, mm-hmm. to different medicine yeah. within, within, you know, cities in Denmark. That would yeah. be fascinating as a comparative to what you found here yeah. in Canada and how are similar strategies being used, for example. Really interesting. Would, would you consider this um, one of the opportunities you found in doing international research or did this postdoc come about in a different way?
1: um it depends on how you define international research right so if you define it as me moving from ghana to canada mm-hmm. right then i would consider it as it's it it's a, it is indeed one of the opportunities i found moving here but in terms of probably this context whether the people i'm studying or traveling outside of canada because i didn't basically didn't travel outside of canada mm. i would not consider it as an international research but it is international because of the context and the people that the target population of my because um these are transnationals, right? Yes. Even though they are Canadians, most of my respondents were Canadians, they are either dual citizenship. So they also have relations back home in their various countries, Nigeria, Ghana, Leone. and they keep constant touch with family members, the other um project developmental projects in their community. Mm. So um so there's kind of trans- some kind of um, international dimension in the research. And even it's evolved in the research where you find people either contacting their family members back home for certain ingredients they can find in the Canadian market. Right, to be either sent to them or they, when it's very severe, they travel back home so that their family members can take them to professional healers to address whatever health So you see a network
0: faced. stretching beyond Canada here. Yeah. You see people accessing cross health, Yeah, cross border, cross cities, cross yeah. families, uh, you know, cross cultural groups. Yeah. Uh, it's really in terms of the theme of this podcast, it really I think highlights how mm-hmm. the what's the word I'm looking for? I'm I'm always at a loss for words, but the the strings is not is not sophisticated enough a word for how people's connections stretch far beyond what are you know, national boundaries
1: yes yeah. and and that was one of the interesting things in my research or interesting things that emerged in my research that gt as a as a geographical contest has created um a, a situation where people don't necessarily have to identify with their ethnocultural origin in order to use certain type of medicines mm-hmm. right because you get interact with people of different cultural backgrounds different social backgrounds, different nationalities, different racial backgrounds, right? And in this form of interaction, people tend to embr- embrace um, health beliefs and health practices that might be alien to their eyes, mm-hmm. right? But they would feel like, okay, for example, I spoke to this um Ghanaian who was using acupuncture and it falls, it falls, which is a
0: traditional Chinese, Asian medicine, yeah. Chinese. Okay. And
1: given that it's, it's not, pre- and the person is around in, in his sixties. Mm-hmm. So you've, especially in the interviews, he talked about this, the extensive views of traditional medicine before he moved to Canada, right? So I was asking him why change the tradition, um, Chinese acupuncture. And he was telling me, well, the herbs he needs for to cure his illness are not readily available in Canada. So if you needs them, he has to travel to um, Ghana, right, wow. for them. And in order to address that shuffle, I think he had this work colleague who recommended acupuncture and he tried it and he thought they are all based on the same um, indigenous notion of healing, right, mm-hmm. which looks just beyond um, absence or presence of diseases and focus on the holistic perspective of restoring health to the person. So he thought it's more in tune to what he was using before coming to Canada right incredible compared to the he 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 does use modern medicine but not for the element that you are seeking for.
0: So you see a blending of strategies here, blending exactly. across different, like mm-hmm. what we consider to be quite stringent boundaries and borders yeah. are not really that fixed at all, right? They're, they're partial and they're dynamic and people are, exactly. are, are mixing and matching according to their own individual mm-hmm. needs or, mm-hmm. or family needs or community needs uh, based on what resources are available to them, exactly. uh, right? So um, that it's really awesome. And at at this time, I think we're we're running we're running slightly low on time. We've got other people that are waiting to get in the studio, so uh, before we say goodbye, I know that you've sent me uh, some photos of something you went to when you were yeah.
1: So it's it's a Derby Festival. So like I said, there is a transnational. They are transnational um, residents or immigrants. Mm-hmm. So this um, in Ghana, every ethnic group has their own festival. Okay, and this particular photo depicts the festival for the Aquapian people. Ekuapim.
0: Ekuapim. Yeah. So where, they, where where are they located in Ghana?
1: They are located um in um between in Greater Accra and Eastern Region. Okay. So on the um so when you go outside of Accra, you have this Ebri
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, high range of hills. That's where they are located.
0: Is it close to is the Volta? It's region... close to the capital. Yeah, I've, I've been to Accra and Tema, which I really really yeah. liked. Um. I, I, I loved Accra, I really... Um, but then I went to the, the Volta region. But...
1: Yeah, so I think you can access... Because it's a huge range of um, mountains or yeah. highlands, it stretches from eastern region to some part of the Volta region. So you can access it through the, by the Volta region or you can access it through greater Accra region. And
0: you went to this festival? And what was happening? What was so happening this
1: there? festival was by the Kwapims that are living in GTA. So it corresponds with the... At the same time as um, the festival is being celebrated in Ghana, in mm-hmm. their communities in Ghana. So they have local chiefs where they get together, there's drumming and dancing. Deba, Grand Debas you have in Ghana chiefs in they don't sit in Palanquins here, but basically dressed in the traditional Kente clothes, right? With um, gold, regulars and other ornaments adorned them.
0: Incredible. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for sending through those photos. Uh, I'll, put them up. I'll put them up together with the podcast. And then finally, you sent me through a song that makes you think of your research and, uh, you know, the, the theme of this podcast. Can you tell me the name of the song and what made you choose that song for this podcast?
1: So the song is a high life song by um, a high life artist known as I'm Watching the Day. It's one of the popular um, high life artists in Ghana. And it talks about the, the, the life of a sojourner, right, in a foreign land. And because Ghanaians tend to travel much mm-hmm. the life depicts the actual the, the kind of um, struggles you know um especially i would say africans living in western go through right and it's also an admonishment that people should um endure the hardship that come with it because it's but temporary because mm-hmm. the hope is that you struggle make to make a good life for you and your family, those with you in your um, in your host country as well as those in back home. So it's more like an, an admonishment to 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 endure the pain but it will lead to, to fruitful like outcome.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you the best of luck as you start your postdoc in a new country uh, and you're moving with, with your family and your daughter. Yeah. And um, I wish you all the best of luck. And thank you so much for joining us uh, today.
1: Thank you. pleasure a pleasure.
0: Have a fantastic time. Thank you to today's guest, as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC, with a special thanks to the station manager, Dinah Jansen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafikizolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada International Thought and Scholarship.